Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing really well. Recovered from a great weekend <laughs> in Hartford with you and uh, our good buddy, the newest addition to WWE, Bruce Pritchard. It was a great weekend. I had a great time. I got to tell you, I got uh, good feedback last week, but I think the most surprising thing about our show this week, Eric, is that Uncensored 97 won the poll. I wanted to have some fun and go back and really bust your balls about the silliness of uh, Uncensored 95 or Uncensored 96, which were just horrific shows. But 1997 won out, and it really wasn't even that close. 1998 came in second place. That says a lot about the popularity of the year 1997 and just how hot WCW was more than anything else. Wouldn't you agree? I I really would. And after watching this um, pay-per-view and I I really hadn't watched it, like in so many cases, when we do these types of things, I had to go back and and watch the pay-per-view on the WWE network. And I was frankly shocked at, at the quality of it. It really, really was a solid pay-per-view and it may not be a pay-per-view that stands out in some people's minds because nothing major happened. It wasn't like a Hulk Hogan heel turn or, or Sting and Hogan after a set, you know, 18 month buildup or anything like that. But I think the overall quality of the pay-per-view from a production point of view, from a storytelling point of view, from a match quality point of view, uh, I was so impressed with this. I, I was very excited that we're actually going to be covering this because I didn't feel like I was going to be getting my balls busted for two and a half hours. Yeah, I'm really disappointed that our fans didn't let me do that. But I get why they picked this. 97. You'll get your turn. Year. You'll get your turn. Come on. You're right, because I'm going to make an executive decision at the end of the show. But let's have fun <laughs> for now. I do want to mention that this is, just to your point, not really uh, a super notable show, but it is very fun. And I remember this show like it was yesterday. I actually watched this at my buddy Jonathan's house. And I don't even remember how random that is, but this pay-per-view really sticks out to me. And I was probably at the height of my fandom here in 97. And I say that every time we cover this particular year, uh, and this show is no exception. We're going to be heavy on news and notes and things that are going around. Uh, but then, you know, we'll actually cover the actual show as well. Let's talk about uncensored. Uh, we're right here on the uh, anniversary. It's coming up on March 16th. This was way back in 1997, of course. They're at the North Charleston Coliseum in North Charleston, South Carolina. It drew 9,295 fans, just a few hundred tickets shy of a sellout. The gate was uh, $101,000 and change. But the uptick in business is really the story. We're here in March of 97, but let's go back to March of 95. In March of 95, your average attendance was 2,020 fans by 97 here. Just two years later, it's 4,955 fans. Your gate is three times as much as well. In March of 95, your average gate at a live show was 21,280 bucks. We're over 61 grand two years later, and you're actually selling out shows, which wasn't happening at all back in March of 95. Ratings are about the same, a 2.27 to a 2.20. Uh, and the pay-per-view buy rates are actually down a little bit, going from a 0.96 to a 0.70. But all the other indicators, and no one would disagree, is that business is headed in the right direction. You had to feel like this is a, a whole new company comparing March of 95 to March of 97, wouldn't you, Eric? No, I would. And I think you could even take a, a shorter view of it and compare 
you know, 97 to 96, you know, felt the same way. I really think 1997, when I look back now after doing a couple of these podcasts with you where we go back, especially during this time, 96, 97, 98, I think 97 was probably not only the most exciting and, and the fastest growth that we were really experiencing or at least laying the foundation for it. But from a creative point of view and from an operational point of view, it was the favorite year, my favorite year um, in terms of WCW and my relationship with them, because it was, this was a time when we really had no, no interference really from the network, from, from Turner broadcasting. We were on a roll. Everybody left us to our own devices. Nobody tried to micromanage us. Nobody tried to improve. When I say nobody, I mean nobody from the network who really didn't understand the wrestling business. So that we had more or less a free reign to to do what we felt we needed to do to grow the brand. And that that changed in '98. But in '97, particularly right now, in this period of '97, we were we were on fire, and and people were letting us do what we could do. It was great. Well, the big story heading into uncensored is all about a celebrity signing. Now, a year later, or maybe eight months later, we're going to start to see news of Mike Tyson, but the first big celebrity that happened in pro wrestling in this era is Dennis Rodman and Dennis Rodman and what he meant to American pop culture at the time can't really be explained properly here on a podcast, but this guy had, had dominated the basketball court, you know, leading, you know, almost every team he ever played and rebounds and just being a dominant performer. And now he finds himself on a real championship team with the Chicago bulls. And because they're doing so well, and Michael Jordan's there, he's making news everywhere with the crazy looks with his hair. You know, he's dying his hair in these ridiculous patterns and colors. He's doing autograph sessions for his new book, wearing a wedding dress. I mean, just way over the top with the promotion. And he got himself in a little bit of hot water. He would clash with coaches. He would clash with officials. And he was just constantly in the limelight of not just sports news, but actual mainstream news as well. Um, Meltzer would write Rodman, the regularly suspended current leading anti-hero of the NBA Chicago bulls, who has a movie coming out this week, will be part of the NWO group and appear on the WCW uncensored pay-per-view on March 16th and make what is believed to be two additional appearances with WCW as a participant in matches. The first of which is tentatively planned for the bash of the beach pay-per-view in July in Daytona. WCW was able to outmaneuver the WWF, which was also pursuing Rodman. The WWF had offered Rodman a two show deal reportedly for a million dollar fee. The first of which would have been WrestleMania to appear in Goldust corner, to attempt to help the faltering Goldust character get over stronger as both a baby face and as a mainstream bizarre cult figure. The second of which would have been the SummerSlam pay-per-view where he and Goldust would have formed a tag team. However, Rodman's representative, since Rodman worked a WCW pay-per-view in July of 95 as Hulk Hogan's corner man went to WCW to match the offer. WCW pulled the deal off for an undisclosed figure, although you'd have to figure they at least matched the WWF software, if not topped it in some fashion, since there were several incentives for WCW to do so. Besides nixing a WWF publicity ploy with a star that certainly would have gotten them mainstream play, WCW was able to get a front page story in the Chicago Sun-Times just two weeks before WrestleMania with the breaking of the story, although WCW had for the most part completed the deal more than a week earlier. Now that's of significance because WrestleMania 13, which also happened in late March here 
is happening in Chicago. So now the biggest star outside of Michael Jordan in the market is Dennis Rodman. And he's making headlines for the competition just two weeks prior to WrestleMania. What a coup this Rodman signing is. And that's what the theme of this show is really going to be about as we get started here. Take us back to the beginning of when you first worked with Rodman in July of 95 as a corner man for Bash at the Beach. And then let's talk about how his name comes up again here in 1997. Well, 1995 was was more or less just a one-off. Nobody really had anticipated that we were going to be doing anything long-term with Rodman. So that really wasn't a big deal, having him in the corner. The big deal came, obviously, with... Um, Rodman in 97. And I remember specifically, I believe I was, uh, I was at the airport Marriott in Atlanta and I was there, I think for a meeting with Ric Flair because Rick would often stay at the airport Marriott in, in Atlanta. And I remember walking into the hotel. It was about five or six o'clock in the evening. I just got there. And of course my cell phone rang and it was Hulk. And he, he said, Hey, we, we've got an opportunity here. I said, okay, lay it on me. And he, t- he told me about Rodman and evidently Dennis and, and Hulk. And I, the, the deal for us was relatively easy to put together because Dennis was such a huge fan of Hulk Hogan. And at the time, he really wasn't uh, familiar with that many people in, in WWF. So for, for Dennis, Hulk Hogan was the biggest name in the industry. And, and he just got along with Hulk. So when Hulk called me and, and said, hey, we've got this opportunity. Do you want to talk to him? I said, absolutely. And I got on the phone almost immediately uh, that evening when I was done with my meeting. I got on the phone to Dwight Manley, who at that time was representing Dennis, as well as Carl Malone, ironically. And we cut a deal literally over the phone. The deal portion was very, very easy. Um, it got a little trickier when you know we tried to navigate what we could do and what we couldn't do. But – the deal itself was really pretty easy to put together. I think I had I had the deal more or less done by 10 o'clock the next morning. At that point, had the WWF ever been discussed with you? Did Manley or anybody mention that, hey, we had an offer from the WWF? Hulk did. Hulk, okay. And he didn't say they had an offer. He just said that they're talking. I see. That was, that was the only info that I had. I know sometimes uh, Bruce gets weird whenever I sort of press him on the financial end of a deal. Do you remember what the terms of that deal was off the top of your head? It was a million dollars for a pay-per-view for a not si- for this, not for 97 for, for the pay-per-view, you know, later on at bash at the beach, but not for uncensored. I don't remember what his deal was. And I, I probably, it was part of, it was probably a three part deal. I'd have to go back and try to find his agreement, but it really wasn't that significant of a deal. I know it sounds like a lot of money and it is a lot of money, but if you look at what, you know, other celebrities have been paid both by the WWF and, and by WCW, Based on what we were getting, as you just kind of detailed as you were setting this up, Rodman was one of the biggest names in pop culture. You know, his association with Madonna and, and all the headlines he was getting. And he was just, you know, I mean, by today's standards, he was pretty normal. But back in 97, he was definitely on the cutting edge of pop culture. So even though it was a big deal, it was a seven figure deal, I'm not going to minimize that. But w- within the context of what we were getting and the amount of press we were going to be able to get out of it, it really wasn't that big a deal. The Madonna deal, the Carmen Electra deal, you know, he had written a book, you know, he, he was bouncing around from team to team and getting in trouble, but now he's on the championship team and he's got the crazy hair. And I mean, he's the bad boy of sports and he embraced that, uh, which is really polar opposite of Dennis Rodman in real life. Who's probably 
much more shy and reserved than you might imagine. But one of the things that was always interesting to me is so many people were up in arms saying, oh, well, he can't even do anything. His basketball contract won't allow it. Well, he's a free agent at the end of this year. So certainly his bulls contract may have prevented a certain amount of physical activity or involvement, but once the season's over, he's pretty much able to do whatever he wants. Is that basically the gist of it? That's the gist of it. I mean, you hit it right on the head. I mean, he was limited at this point in 97 in March, but he was not limited by July. And, uh, brother Hogan does Rodman a favor and cuts some promos promoting Rodman's movie. And it's going to be a way to sort of cross promote all of his other projects, uh, through the WCW platform. So it's a make sense deal. Uh, were you friendly or have you spoken in years since to Bruce or anyone else about their attempt to get Rodman and whether they looked at this as a significant loss or what their attitude was to seeing that, Hey, he's going to pop up for them now. You know, I never have, um, we, yeah, you know, there's certain topics that we tend to avoid, <laughs> particularly sensitive ones like this. And if, if memory serves me correctly, I was told that it was Shane McMahon that was trying to do the deal with, with Dennis. Um, that may or may not be accurate. I don't know. Cause I wasn't on that end of the deal. And I, I, I didn't hear that from Dwight Manley or from Dennis, obviously, but I, I did hear it subsequently that it was Shane, Shane McMahon that was trying to put that deal together. And I never talked to Shane about it. No, Bruce and I have never really talked about it. Let me ask, you know, when, when you talk about bringing in a big celebrity like this, there's a certain contingent of the locker room that probably doesn't like that and feel like it's not fair that this guy's coming in and working this little and making this much money. And there's a certain amount of that that happens pretty routinely. I mean, even a handful of years ago, there were pretty vocal performers saying, Hey, it's not fair that a part-timer like the rock gets to come in and, and take a spot from one of the full-time guys who's been, you know, beating his brains out on the roads every week. And instead he just slides in and gets the big money slot. And if that's the attitude for a guy like the rock, who certainly paid his dues, it's gotta exist for a guy like Dennis Rodman. Did you hear about that? Any sort of upheaval in the locker room of any sort? Not directly. Of course, you hear a lot of things indirectly, um, second, third, fourth hand, and so forth. And I'm sure there were some people there that resented it. And I, I guess it's human nature, unfortunately. But, you know, fairness, when it comes to business, you know, fairness and equity is in the eye of the beholder. And when you are the businessman making a decision about what a celebrity could potentially do for your brand and all the ancillary benefit that comes along with a great program with a very high profile celebrity, you're measuring things that aren't obvious to the boys in the back. And I, and I, I use that term because I hate it, but you know, the, the talent in general, you know, has a basic understanding of the business of the wrestling business, very basic. They understand, you know, in depth, you know, what it takes to lay out a great match and, and how a great match should be, you know, executed. And in some cases, talent understands psychology and all of that. But very few, if any, of the uh, of the talents in WCW at that time had any real understanding beyond a very fundamental one of the business of the wrestling business. So, of course, it wouldn't be obvious to them some of the ancillary benefits that either, you know, that Mike Tyson brought, which I think is demonstrable when you look at how that turned business around for WWE, much in the same way that really the NWO angle turned WCW around. But there's always going to be people that are 
going to bitch and moan and whine and feel like they deserve more and kind of resent the celebrity that comes in and picks up a big payday. But like I said, if they were looking at the the broader picture, the kind of macro view of the business of the wrestling business, it probably wouldn't bother them just as, nearly as much. Well, let's talk about somebody else who was bitching during this time. Glenn Gilberti, guy known as Disco Inferno on TV, was fired on March 4th. This comes directly from The Observer. When he refused to do a program, which would have ended with him putting over Jacqueline in the singles match at uncensored, the vast majority of the wrestlers were totally in support of disco on that one and felt that putting over a woman in a singles match was a career killer. Well, this is 1997, uh, not too terribly long before we would see Jeff Jarrett put over China on pay-per-view for the intercontinental title. Um, let's go back to early March, 1997. Whose idea was Disco and Jacqueline? And what can you tell us about his firing here? Uh, that was a Kevin Sullivan uh, angle. Kevin was a big supporter uh, of Jacqueline. Um, that was all his idea. And I, I do remember it. And I didn't like the idea that Disco didn't feel like he should do what, you know, Kevin asked him to do. So, yeah, we, we had an issue, but it wasn't a. You know, losing disco for a period of time wasn't the most important thing on my <laughs> list of things to worry about that particular time. No offense, disco. But where's the line? You know, like some guys stroke their Fu Manchu and say, that doesn't work for me, brother. And we go with their idea. Other guys say, I really don't want to do that. And let's pack your shit. You're out of here. There, so there's a line. Where is the line? I think the line for me personally is if I get to that doesn't work for me, brother, great. Then tell me why and tell me what you would do instead. And if there's a good reason why, or there's a better idea, you know, to be had, then I'm all ears. If you can't tell me why, or if the, when you do tell me why it's because it doesn't serve you individually, then we've got a problem. And I think that was the case. There, there's a big difference between that doesn't really work for me and here's what I think we should do and that doesn't work for me. I'm not going to do it. There's a big difference. One of the other uh, things that makes the news is uh, the St. Paul Pioneer Press running all the details of Hogan's lawsuit uh, in Minnesota with Kate Kennedy. This goes back a couple of years. Uh, ultimately Hogan wound up suing her for extortion. It was an ugly mess. Is any of that on WCW's radar at all? Or did you guys consider that a private matter that had nothing to do with y'all? It had nothing to do with us and it really didn't. I mean, we were obviously aware of it. Sure. I'm not going to suggest we weren't, but it really, I don't think I got one call from the North tower, meaning anybody that was above me in management at Turner Broadcasting. I don't think anybody really, obviously we talked about it. I think Harvey and I probably talked about it for a total of five minutes, but it just, it, it really was a non-issue for us. Did you guys uh, just assume that this was um, sort of uh, part of celebrity that these lawsuits are going to pop up and, and really just sort of shrug it off? Or did you think that no matter if it did have some sort of merit, it really wasn't going to affect WCW's business because that was the real person and not the television character. Cause it does feel like something that if your top star is going to be in some sort of, I, I guess maybe it's not a legal issue at this point. It's a civil matter. Is that really the distinction? It was a civil matter. Number one. And, and I think we probably 
I'll, I'll speak for myself. I can't speak for a bunch of people at Turner Broadcasting that I, I didn't talk to about this. But, you know, for me, it was a private matter. It was not unusual. I had been on the receiving end of it, quite frankly, with Missy Hyatt. So, um, look, anybody that thinks, and I know today is in a completely different, you know, cultural and social environment than we were living in back in 1997. But for anybody to think that celebrities aren't targeted with these types of lawsuits specifically to try to get a payday is kidding themselves. It happened then and it happens now. Um, in this particular case, it wasn't so much that we believed or didn't believe, you know, either side of the story. It's that, look, it's a civil matter, number one. It's her word against his, number two. And it's going to play out the way it's going to play out. And we'll deal with it once it does. It's not like we were going to you know, all of a sudden abandon all of our plans and completely change our programming and, you know, dump all of our creative and, you know, go through a bunch of flaming hoops just because there was a civil lawsuit. It just, you, you couldn't possibly operate that way or we chose not to, let's put it that way. Aaron Anderson's recently been in the news and he was in the news back here in March of 97. David Wright, Aaron is expected to be out about four months and may undergo surgery to fuse three vertebrae in his neck. The neck injury, which apparently is a flaring up of an injury from seven years ago, caused in a match against the Steiners, has caused his hand to go numb. So this is March of 97, and of course we know in August of 97, he's going to give his spot in the Four Horsemen to Kurt. And as a result, Arn would wind up retiring. Um, how big of a conversation was this? Arn has been a big part of the NWA and Jim Crockett promotions and WCW for a long time. And when a guy like that is forced to leave the ring, it's gotta be something that a lot of people are talking about. Of course. And they were talking about it. Number one, because Aaron was such an established talent and such a big part of the brand going, you know, back to day one for WCW and, and number two, because everybody liked art, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of people that, you know, didn't respect Arn and, and really enjoyed being around Arn. So, you know, it was professionally, it was a topic of news and concern and awareness. And I think on a probably even more so on a personal level, because like I said, there was nobody that didn't really respect and or like Arn quite a bit. Myself included, by the way. Meltzer would report that the August Clash of the Champions had been officially canceled because by that time, TBS would be running a two-hour weekly live show uh, which was almost a sure thing at this point to be Thursday night heads up with Seinfeld and friends, which is obviously a lot more competition than even raw, but ultimately that clash of the champions wound up happening. Do you remember there being discussion in early 97 that, Hey, we're going to phase the clash out because August of 97 is the last one. When and why and how did those discussions to end clash of the champions go? The, those discussions started really when Thunder became inevitable. And, you know, I think it's worth noting here because 97 was such a pivot point. And in many respects, we're talking about right now, you know, uncensored, this is the early part of 97. By the end of 97 is when things started kind of changing for us. I think the discussions about the Clash of the Champions and, and how we were going to treat that and whether we we're going to do it anymore – those started probably a month or so after, you know, Ted made the decision that, that he wanted Thunder. And most of our discussions were, you know, myself, Brad Siegel, 
um, Harvey Schiller to a degree were all about how do we avoid this? You know, how can we talk Ted out of thunder? Because we all knew it was, I don't want to say it was a mistake. We just knew we were understaffed. We knew we didn't have the infrastructure. We knew that we were operating and I'm talking about post-production and the, you know, the, the, the crew that had to travel and be on the road. And, you know, it, it, Nitro wasn't the only show we were producing. We were still producing WCW Saturday night. We were still producing three syndicated shows, I believe. Um, we were still producing Sunday night's main event. I'm pretty sure at this time. So there was a lot of production that needed to, to happen and to add thunder on top of it. We knew was, was a ball buster. Uh, it, that, that reality became worse as time went on when we found out that nobody wanted to fund it. Ted wanted it on thunder or excuse me, Ted wanted a thunder on TBS, but TBS didn't want to pay for it. So it, it got a little squirrely towards the end of 97, but the discussions about the clash started happening shortly after thunder became a reality. And, and quite honestly, it was like, look, we, we just can't produce that much television. And we're going to start diluting ourselves. And that really was what happened with Thunder. You know, everybody likes to speculate about what really killed WCW or what was the tipping point or what was the nail in the coffin. And there's no one thing, despite what everybody thinks they know about the business of the WCW wrestling business. There was no one thing, but there was a combination of a lot of things. And or, or several important things. And Thunder was one of them. Uh, we knew that we were going to dilute ourselves. We knew we were going to dilute our talent. We knew that we were going to dilute our storylines. Those are all major challenges that we knew we were facing with the addition of Thunder. And we just couldn't handle another quarterly special. And it wasn't necessary. TBS, I think, felt like if they had their WCW franchise exclusively to them being Thunder, that they no longer needed the Clash of the Champions because it was really a primetime opportunity that the Clash represented for TBS, and they were getting that every single week with Thunder. So it wasn't a big debate you know, with, with uh, Bill Burke over at TBS at that time. It was just, okay, if we're going to pull this off with Thunder, here's what we're going to need to do in the process. Let's talk about uh, somebody that we haven't talked about a lot on the show. Mark Madden. The February 24th Pittsburgh Observer reporter covers the lawsuit that the WWF has against WCW and the controversy that really is at the heart of this lawsuit at this point, especially what's being covered in Pittsburgh, where Mark Madden's from is a deposition where Mark Madden said that he knew Hall and Nash were WCW employees before he began pretending they were outsiders invading WCW on his hotline reports. When the WWF demanded to know who told him that Hall and Nash were really under contract, but to go ahead and pretend they weren't Madden invoked what Meltzer called the Pennsylvania shield law, which protects journalists from revealing sources. And here's a quote from Jerry McDivitt. Mark Madden is to journalism. What Heidi Fleiss is to dating, which I think is a tremendous line. Uh, what does it have to do with journalism when you are deliberately lying? WCW's lawyer john houston pope contended that if the wwf is correct in contending madden isn't truly a journalist because his 900 reports were uh, house organ reports not based on truthful reporting then the lawsuit should be dismissed as neither defamation defamation nor unfair competition uh, can be based on statements that the audience knows to be unreal so 
some pretty interesting legal wrangling here where you're pretending to be a journalist, but you're covering something maybe in a not totally journalistic fashion, but it's all pay for play and it's all wrestling and it's all entertainment. Did, but the rumor and innuendo is that Mark Madden had to be sort of, uh, I don't know, supervised maybe is the right word before he would publish those hotline reports because you had multiple of these lawsuit scares. Uh, talk to me about Mark Madden, the hotline, the lawsuit, and whether or not you guys put a restrictor plate on him. Well, eventually we, we had to, and this wasn't the first time. I mean, we, there was a number of things that occurred with Mark uh, and Gene Oakland as well when it came to the hotline where these guys were so aggressive and they were pushing so hard. And I, in, in many respects, I couldn't blame them for that. They were, they were pushing the envelope, and that's what we had to do to turn that company around. So while I understood what they were doing and why they were doing it, their judgment sometimes was questionable. And I think it would have, we all would have been better served if they would have communicated differently or more effectively with management and with creative before they just went off and did what they did. And I, you know, I can't, you know, deny any responsibility for that as the president of the company and the person ultimately responsible. Um, I think I, in retrospect, I should have put together a, a process that would at least give us a chance to fine tune, or in some cases, um, eliminate some of the content that went on that hotline. But the teasers were, you know, intentionally provocative. They were intentionally controversial. And sometimes, well, in Mark's case, oftentimes he'd, he'd step over the line and we'd have to pull him back in. And it was a constant battle. But I understood, like I said, I understood and respected Mark for what he was at least trying to do. It's a fun, uh, it was a fun time to be a wrestling fan because those hotlines were just crazy. And, uh, they even come up now just the other day, I was talking to Mike Weber, who's at fight now. And he said that once upon a time, his duties were to listen to Madden's reports before they were published, just to make sure that somebody else had an eye on what was going on over there. But it was fun. Something else that was fun was when you guys would run nitro from Panama city club La Vila. And that was the go home edition of nitro for this particular uncensored. And, uh, I think it's the last nitro that happened there uh, in Panama city, especially outdoors like this until the last one, which was March 26, 2001. Now that show wasn't at club La Vila, but this one was, this feels like something the boys would have greatly enjoyed. Talk to me about how Nitro at Club La Vila came to be, whose idea was it, what challenges it represented, all that type of stuff. We wanted to do something outside. We wanted to do something different. That was, you know, the running theme, you know, if you look at Nitro, you know, when we launched it and we, we you, you look and you step back, you know, it's easy to pick apart any one individual show. But if you step back and you look at the trajectory, creative trajectory of WCW from really uh, Nitro the launch of it and my goal and my mandate really to everybody was, you know, we're either going to be, we can't be better than the WWF. We don't want to be less than the WWF. So we have to think of ways every single day to be different than the WWF. That's really how nitro became nitro. And when I sat in a room with myself and, you know, yellow legal notepad and just made a list of, all of the strengths of, of WWF at that time and, and all of the challenges of WCW, um, 
I, I literally made a list of all, all of the positives of WWF and said, okay, now how can I do it differently? They're taped, we're live, so forth. And it just went down a list. So the, the entire company was looking for new and different ways. Why we went to Sturgis. It's why we did, like to do shows outdoors. It's why we did shows. Um, we did a Nitro, I believe, from uh, Charlotte during a NASCAR event outside in the rain. You know, I always, you know, live TV works because it's different and you feel like you're actually there and you're experiencing it live and in the moment with everybody else, including the people that are in the arena or, or, or at the event itself. And I believe it was David Crockett who found Club Livia. Uh, and we went down there and checked it out and it, it scoped out perfectly for a television production for what we wanted to do. And it had the vibe, you know, we were trying to skew younger. We were trying to, to attract a younger demo. What better place to do that than at spring break in Panama city for crying out loud. So much like Sturgis was designed really not to, you know, maximize the live event opportunity that a gate would create for us or even merchandising. It really was, you know, here's a live event that could really help establish us and brand us against the, the demo, which was 18 to 34-year-old males that we were really targeting at that time. And that was a big, that was the point of differentiation, I guess, of between WWF at the time and WCW is that they were still, if you go back and look at WWF in 1997, they're still doing, you know, Doink the Clown, you know, cartoony, circus-like kitty shit and we were going after an 18 to 34 year old male demo that they were not that was the strength that was the that's what grew wcw and club Livia was a great way to to help affect that well it's uh it was uh, an interesting time in wrestling and, and quite an interesting bar club Livia was because uh it's right there in the the heart of the redneck riviera panama city and well, I'm sure the boys had fun. We'll, we'll believe it at that. This uh, go home <laughs> edition of Nitro on our way here has a Piper appearance, and Piper feels like he's going off script here. He's um, agreed to have the Horseman as his partner at Uncensored, and then he calls the WWF liars, and he's specifically responding to criticism that has been dumped on him since Super Brawl, where he may have ended against Hulk Hogan, saying. When I was there last year and beat Goldust, I only had one hip then. And uh, he's ripping on his critics and saying that he's not going to be a fair weather friend and turn his back on people, implying that the WWF has. And he says that they were right about there being no one hip wrestlers in the WWF. In fact, there's not one hip wrestler in the whole company. Again, that's why everybody watches WCW pay per views and not WWF pay per views. You guys were having enough trouble. Um, you know, keeping yourself out of the courtroom with this back and forth. Was any of this discussed and how much of this is Piper just doing what Piper wants to do? Well, no, it was discussed, you know, Roddy wouldn't go completely off script. Roddy was really, he was a gentleman. And although he would improv during his promos oftentimes because he didn't work off a of script, but generally, um, I knew in advance where he was going to go and what he was going to do and say, Roddy was smart enough and experienced enough <clears throat> that if he was going to hit on a particularly hot topic, uh, he'd run it by me first. There was nothing in that promo that was a, a, a legal concern. So I was, even though it was edgy and he was calling out the WWF uh, more or less a, on a personal level, um, but 
none of it was untrue. It was his point of view based on things that WWF had actually said. So there was no legal jeopardy and no reason to sanitize it. Towards the end of that Nitro, the NWO does an interview with Sting coming out with them. And Hogan gives Sting an NWO shirt, and he just stands there and doesn't take the shirt. Uh, and the show actually ends with Harlem Heat and Public Enemy fighting. So uh, it's not the hot finish going to the pay-per-view that you might normally expect, but this is a different type of show. Uh, but it's probably one of the only times the Public Enemy were in the last segment on Nitro. Uh, that Nitro does a 3.51 rating. Raw only does a 2.34 rating. Uh, even the replay for Nitro does well. It gets a 1.5. Let's get to uh, Uncensored here. Uh, Ice Train would pin Max in the dark match. And now we're off to the races with the real show. Uh, the first match is quite the match. Uh, Meltzer would give it three and three quarter stars. It's Dean Malenko and Eddie Guerrero for the U.S. title. And Dean Malenko actually gets the win. Meltzer would say that he was the clear cut crowd favorite in the match, even though Guerrero in storyline is the baby face. Uh, but this is a, a pretty fun match here. Um, there is some stuff going on outside of the ring. We'll talk about that in a minute. What'd you think of the actual match itself? Before we get into the match though, I want to go to the open of the show with dusty and Tony and Bobby. Yeah. Because when I, when I watched the show back one, and again, I didn't know what to expect. I, you know, I, the uns- I knew it was in 97. I knew it was probably going to be pretty decent because I knew we were on a roll there. But when I went back and watched it on the WWE Network, um, I was so impressed with the open, the way Tony and Bobby and Dusty set it up. By a minute 30 into that opening segment, we already knew the stakes. And these the stakes in this show, and I'm, you know, as we get further into breaking these shows down and comparing WWF or WWE to WCW, you know, I'm going to try to break story down a little bit more than I have in the past, but if you, and and the formula and the format, but if you go back and watch the show, I think it's a very good lesson on a great way to open up a pay-per-view because you're reminding the viewer right off the bat, what the stakes are. And I think that that's one of my, I don't want to say, criticisms, but one of the things that I'm aware of when I watch wrestling now is how little I'm reminded or engaged in the fact that a match really matters. Right. You know? And it, it, I think it comes down to, you know, if you're writing wrestling or if, if you're the talent involved in, in the match, because you have to tell that story in the ring too, there has to be at the, at the very beginning of any feud, there has to be one, one word question. Why? Why are they wrestling? Why, why is there a feud? What is the issue? What's at stake? And if you can't answer those simple questions, then what you're probably watching is filler. And I think in this particular case, in this pay-per-view, Tony and Bobby and Dusty, and I'm going to talk more about Dusty later on because I think this was some of the best comments. I was laughing when I was watching the show, mostly at Dusty's commentary. It was just awesome. But they really did such a phenomenal job of setting up the stakes, telling the viewer how to watch the show. And and one more thing on this. I met a very, very successful television and movie producer several years ago. We we never did business, but we came close a couple of times. And he worked with Jennifer Lopez and some of the biggest you know actors at the time and, and some musicians. And he told me once that, you know, the the – when it comes to a formula for writing scripting, 
producing, you know, the end always hangs on the beginning. And I use that almost every single day. And I was using it here in that you have to tell the audience how to watch the show. You have to tell the audience or remind the audience what's at stake. You have to remind the audience why people are feuding. And, and, and most importantly, like I said, tell them how to watch it and what to watch for. And I think Tony and Bobby and, and Dusty did a phenomenal job. If you're an announcer or you want to be an announcer or you're interested in what works for announcing, go back and watch that segment because they did a, on a scale of one to 10, they did a 10 in terms of setting the show up properly. Now, as far as the match goes between Dean and Eddie, yeah, Eddie had, you know, to me, he had a little bit of a heel edge to him. It was very difficult for me to really distinguish who is the, the baby face and who is the heel in terms of the way they conducted the match. Eddie had that kind of almost a heel edge to him when he came to the ring. And we saw a lot of that throughout the match. I thought the match was phenomenal. I really, really dug it. Tony, again, and I'm not just putting him over because we're doing a live show together pretty soon. But I think this may have been one of the better pay-per-views, in, in my opinion, in terms of what I like, uh, that Tony called play-by-play on because he really told the story throughout the entire pay-per-view. He kept reminding the viewers what the backstory was. He kept reminding viewers what the stakes were. He kept reminding viewers, you know, why these two are in the ring and why we're at the point that we are in this feud. So Tony did a great job. The wrestling psychology was outstanding in the ring. The storytelling in the ring was phenomenal. And I really, really, really liked the finish because it caught me by surprise. And it wasn't your typical, you know, WCW was guilty of this and I'm, you know, partly largely responsible for it. Our finishes were not, they were not up to par. There was nobody in WCW that was really good at finishes, including me. And this finish, while it looked like it was going to be your standard interference type of finish, and it was interference, obviously, but it was done in a very, very creative way that quite, yeah, it, it caught me by surprise. So I, I really liked the finish. There was nothing about this match I, I can criticize at all. So Guerrero has put on Malenko's fish, finisher, the, uh, Texas Cloverleaf, and then six comes down. So Guerrero drops the hold to argue with six, who's trying to steal the United States belt. And then six drops the camera. Malenko gets it, clocks Guerrero with it to score the pin. And now he's the United States champion. And then after the match, Malenko seemingly filmed the knockout or the knocked out Guerrero, uh, and, and left him the video camera, apparently some sort of consolation prize. Meltzer would say, it's the best match on the show and gave it three and three quarter stars. Um, Guerrero has uh, an injury in the middle of this match. Uh, about four minutes before the finish, he tears his pectoral muscle and he's going to need to, uh, have surgery on that to repair it. But the storyline in the middle of the match is we go backstage and we see Rick Steiner left laying and he's surrounded by Hall Nash and six. And they're mockingly calling for help. Eventually Steiner stretchered out and taken to an ambulance. And that's really telling the story for later in the show with your, the end hangs on the beginning line of thinking, right? Well, very much so. And here's another approach that I felt really strongly about by 1997. 
and and you know we learned obviously from 1996 when you when when you can create a question and th- that you you know people are going to buzz about you know who's the third man now, obviously that was a very big question there was an entire angle built around it happened to be a really hot angle and that's a very easy example to point to but if you go back to the beginning of the open of this show one of the things that tony and I believe it was Dusty got into a conversation about Dennis Rodman. He's here, but how is he going to factor in? Is he going to factor in? And just by planting that seed in the very beginning, you are engaging the audience consciously or subconsciously, getting them getting them to wonder what's going to happen. It's a question mark, right? And that approach to storytelling was working very, very well for us. So whenever we could create a question or create some doubt – in order to engage the audience in the story, we try to take advantage of that. You know, Rodman, you know, the narrative in the beginning in the open of the show with Rodman and questioning how he's going to factor in this this situation with <clears throat> Scott's or excuse me, Rick Steiner and what, you know, WCW was going to do as a result of that situation. All of those were questions that were designed to engage the viewer and ultimately have a payoff at the end. Uh, let's talk about the next match here on the show. We've got Ultimo Dragon working with Psychosis. They're going to go 13 minutes and 17 seconds. It's another really good match. Meltzer gave it three and a half stars. Two of the more underrated players in WCW history. This, to me, represented two back-to-back matches of what was so much better about the WWF in March of or WCW in March of '97 than the WWF. I mean, you've got four really, really talented in-ring performers going out there and just tearing it up. What'd you think of Ultimo Dragon and Psychosis? Before we get to that, I want to back up a little bit to the uh, Piper uh, interview with Gene Okerlund and the, and the Horseman came in to that that interview. I thought, I don't know if you go back again and look at this on the WWE Network, that may have been one of Piper's best interviews in WCW. Now, again, it's not going to go down as one of his craziest interviews. It's not going to go down as one of the most important interviews. But from a purely producer's standpoint, writer's standpoint, if you look at all of the boxes that got checked during that promo, Piper was on his game. And my favorite part of that promo was when Gene asked him about Dennis Rodman and, and Piper said, you know what you get when you cross Hulk Hogan with Dennis Rodman? You get Fredericks of Hollywood Hogan. Silly, simple, but it was so effective. And then you had, of course, Steve McMichaels. And by the way, you know, you bust my balls, a lot of, you know, wrestling fans. And and that's okay. I probably deserve it when it comes to Steve McMichaels because I did force him and push him pretty hard down people's throats. But go back and watch this promo with Steve McMichaels and tell me that that isn't a better promo than 90% of the people in the business today. I'm telling you, he did a great job. And here's an example of a guy who is relatively new in the in the wrestling business at this point. But he went out there with no script. Nobody spent four hours with him, you know, making him rehearse word for word for word. And he went out there and he nailed that promo. So when people criticize Steve McMichaels or criticize me or WCW for using him and for putting him in the horseman, other than Arndt Anderson and Ric Flair, there was nobody that was cutting a better promo than Steve McMichaels, at least in this particular um, scene that we saw. Jeff Jarrett came in and he was wearing his um, 
Chippendale's gimmick. It looked completely ridiculous and non four horseman ish. And Chris, <laughs> Chris, <laughs> really, could you imagine that? And Chris Benoit, yeah, Chris was never really good on the mic. It, he was very, very limited on the mic. That wasn't his strong suit. But, you know, he barely said anything. But Steve McMichaels and Roddy Piper really carried that promo, did a great job. Um, as far as the match with um, Psychosis and Ultimo Dragon, you know, you just said it a few moments ago, your words are not mine. You know, these two back-to-back matches represent everything that was so much better than WCW, than WWF at that time. I'll take that a step further and suggest that these two matches in 1997 were the precursor for the style of wrestling that we're seeing today. Laid the groundwork for the evolution in the much more athletic Japanese style, lucha style, that really is far more common today than it was in 1997, but these guys set the standard. This match was as solid as anything I've seen. Ultimo Dragon, I forgot until I watched this match, just how phenomenal, how crisp, how clean, how athletic he was. He was really the total package. Him and Psychosis both did a great job. And if you go back, again, I'm not selling WWE Network, but if you're really interested in the history and how the industry changed, I really encourage you to go back and look at this match and compare it to the best of what you see today. And, you know, hit me on Twitter and tell me if you don't think this really did set the standard and raise the bar. Another thing that really stood out to me on this particular match at 42 minutes and 12 seconds Sonny Ono, my good buddy, who I just got back from Japan with, probably executed one of the best martial arts kicks or combination of kicks that I've seen in the wrestling industry, bar none. Uh, Outside of the ring uh, with psychosis at 42 minutes and 12 seconds, Sonny Ono laid a perfect round kick, back leg round kick, and stepped into a... um, spin hook kick to the back of the head, back of psychosis's head. Now it's not so much that he did it, but if you go back and watch it, it was like really, really good. And this isn't a Hollywood martial arts move where you're, you're shooting at film style from 15 different angles and you do it 300 times to get that great looking kick. Uh, this is live TV and he pulled it off. So I encourage you, if you're going to go back, you're going to use martial arts, you're going to throw kicks in your wrestling repertoire, go back and check this out because it was perfectly executed by Sonny at this point. Solid finish. Um, not a lot of drama. Again, that's one of the consistent things that I hear myself saying all the time about WCW. Even when we're really, really at our best, which I think we were here, our finishes were still really weak. Our finishes generally weren't nearly as good as the storyline or the match itself. The finishes were always the weak link. And even though the finish was solid, there's nothing really wrong with the finish from a technical point of view. From a producer's point of view or director's point of view, it was almost anticlimactic. It's just like, yeah, oh, man, I wish this wasn't over. As opposed to, holy cow, is that a great finish? Um, But other than the finish being a little lackluster and non-dramatic, the other challenge I had when I looked at this because I try to critique it as much as I liked it I try to look for the you know how would I how would I critique this match today versus how I critiqued it 20 some odd years ago and I think from a critical perspective I didn't I couldn't really tell who's the baby face and who is the heel you know I would have I would have leaned towards Ultimo Dragon being the baby face 
but Sonny was a heel manager. So it, it kind of threw me off a little bit, just not having a, cause I'm a very simple guy. I like good guys. I like bad guys, whether it's a movie, you know, a book, whatever it is, you got to give me a hero and an anti-hero, you know, or you got to give me a, an antagonist and a protagonist. Um, anyway, that was my take. Excellent match. Phenomenal match. I think it set the standard for today's wrestling in many, many respects. I think people are emulating what they learned and what they saw back in 1997, largely because of the two matches we just covered. But I do think that the finish was a little anticlimactic. You know how I know you're having fun? How? You just gave a fucking timestamp. Oh, well, cause it stood out to me. I, you know, I, I do that. If no, I see something saying, that like, really, you're over there taking notes, bro. You're having fun. I'm having a blast. Well, no, I've got to tell you, there are certain pay-per-views when you say, Hey, we're going to talk about this and fuck, I don't want to take any notes. <laughs> I want to forget this thing ever happened. I don't want to have to point out certain things, but this particular pay-per-view, there were so many good things that I found myself doing that as I was taking notes. You know what? What I remembered about this pay-per-view before I even watched it is a move from this match. Psychosis does a leg drop to the floor from the inside of the ring to the floor. That's such a crazy move when you think about it. And it was just in the middle of the match here. It's unbelievable. It is. Like I said, I don't want to keep, you know, putting this match over, but I really, really encourage people who are either breaking into the business or are big fans of the business today. And, and sometimes, you know, a lot of fans that are big fans of the business today weren't even aware of this match. Right. You know, but I really think if you go back and look at the, these last two matches, it'll give you a better appreciation for where we're at today in, in terms of, you know, what we're watching and why we like what we like, because these guys really set the standard. It's unbelievable. It's a great match. Uh, let's go to, uh, the next segment on the show. It's mean gene doing an interview with diamond Dallas page. And this is uh, a pretty famous skit here because Randy Savage and Elizabeth come out and have a copy of the playboy celebrities magazine that just came out where DDP and Kimberly are featured inside and Savage shows off a shot of Kimberly where they've spray painted NWO over her naughty bits that you can't show on TV here. And then Kimberly comes out crying and she's covered in NWO spray paint on the front of her dress. And as Paige is distracted, Savage jumps him and knocks him out with a spray paint can. And then he spray paints NWO on his back and he goes to spray paint Kimberly's back, but Elizabeth wanted to do it instead. And this is a very, very good angle. That's going to really jumpstart probably the low key feud of the year. Of course, the mainstream thing that everybody's going to be talking about is staying in Hulk Hogan, which makes sense. But right underneath that in WCW, as far as a series of matches that carries through a lot of pay-per-views and really for all intents and purposes makes a guy it's this one. And it sort of gets kicked off here. Phenomenal segment. Very memorable. What'd you think watching it back for the first time after all this time? I wish I could go back in time. I, I wish I could reshoot this scene. For a lot of reasons, mostly so I could hang around with Randy again. But as good as this scene was, and as effective as it was, because it was, it really set the tone for Page and Savage, which went on to become a really, really significant storyline. It did so much for for DDP. Um, it went too long. I think it could have been way more effective than it was. Actually, it it got a little redundant for me throughout the scene. 
And I, I just think it could have been much more effective. As effective as it was, I think it could have been even more effective if it would have been tightened up a little bit. But clear, And, and also the thing that occurred to me as I was watching this uh, early this morning, actually, was that you could never get away with this today. Right. You, you, this is, there's a couple things, you know, that I've seen now over the last couple of months. And I think to myself, wow, you know, this was 1997, 1998 or whatever. You could not get anywhere near this in 2019. Fun segment though. Go out of your way to go watch it. Um, was there any pushback from anyone in WCW about highlighting or bringing attention to playboy at this moment or using the magazine like this? None whatsoever. These were the good old days. This was before Terry Tingle came along, you know, standards and practices from Turner Broadcasting. This is before Joe Yuva and, and Turner Ad Sales started telling me how I should be producing professional wrestling and what we could and we couldn't do and what was appropriate and inappropriate and what was too violent and not too violent. This was this was like nobody was fucking with us. <laughs> so no, there was no pushback whatsoever. One of the things I want to talk about is um and I guess we can circle up and talk about this more later, but it is interesting that we've got what WCW put a lot of time, effort, energy, and certainly a boatload of cash into it could have culminated here and, and just how it all changed as we got here, it's Glacier and Mortis, and they're going to have a match next that goes nine minutes and four seconds. And Meltzer would say the two had been practicing this match literally for months at the power plant. And also did the match in Germany for a tour in December It had the look and feel of a match put together extensively and carefully in the gym by two green wrestlers. Mortis shows lots of potential and has good size. Some of the wrestling spots were good. The martial arts spots, particularly the kicking mainly looked slow and fake, but sometimes looked good, but it's hard to get over these guys as martial arts experts in a promotion where you have some of the best kickers in the business, like Ultimo Dragon, Six, and Sonny Ono, whose stuff looks so much better. Um, it's an okay match. It gets a star in three quarters. Glacier hits a kick for the pin. Um, Vandenberg is here. Uh, we've also got Brian Clark, who is going to be signaled to come down, and we know that's going to become Wrath. And there's... Once upon a time, a pretty significant push for this, but now with the popularity of the NWO, uh, there's a bit of a paradigm shift in the company. What'd you think of the match here? And was it sort of surreal to watch it? it no, 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 it wasn't surreal. Um, my, my notes to myself watching the match, I, I was pleasantly surprised. Number one, I thought the match was better than I expected it to be. You know, when I went into watching this, knowing that I was going to have to cover it, um, I kind of expected the worst, and this match, I thought, was pretty solid. I thought it went too long. It, in, two things, really, and they're, they're kind of tied together. When you have guys this big, and Glacier, you know, when you look at Glacier, he doesn't look like he's that big of a guy. I mean, he looks stocky and athletic and all that, but, he, you know, he carried the majority of his weight in his legs, his hips. He's a super strong guy. I'm guessing he went 240, maybe 250. And when you're that big and you're trying to throw kicks that look crisp and clean, especially when you're comparing to comparing them as Dave did to guys like six, you know, six probably weighed 200 pounds soaking wet. 
Sonny weighed 125 pounds with rocks in his pockets. Ultimo Dragon, maybe 145, 150 pounds. When you're smaller like that, it's a little bit like gymnastics. There's a reason why you don't see 225-pound gymnasts, right? And they were doing things that they were just too big to do, uh, at least in Glacier's case. I think his martial arts presentation was just a little too dramatic, a little too um, video game-ish, if you will. Not not very realistic in some cases. His kicks were. I mean, he was a legitimate martial artist. I'm not questioning that. But the way he presented it, he probably over-dramatized it a little bit too much, which took away its believability or credibility, number one. Number two, I think he was trying to do too many things over the course of a match that was really too long if you're going to be throwing a lot of kicks. But people don't realize, and, and Six could probably talk a lot more about this, and, and I can't really speak to it fluently when it comes to working in the ring, but I can tell you that throwing a kick takes about 75% more energy than throwing a punch or a clothesline because it, you know, all of your, your muscles and your, you know, your glutes and your legs, your back, your lower back, your abs, it takes a lot of energy to throw a kick and you tire out very, very quickly, um, in a competitive environment. And I'm pretty sure the same is true here. And I think the fact that these guys were trying to throw so many kicks, especially as big as they were over the course of a nine or 10 minute match was just too much. I think if they would have saved some of that martial arts, you know, trying to set it up, maybe pick one devastating kick. I call, I saw a couple, three or four different sidekicks in the course of this match. A sidekick legitimately is a very devastating kick. If you land it in the right area, it should have been a finish instead of seeing it three or four or five times or more during the course of a match and blowing yourself up in the process because you're a 250 pound guy. Mortis was a good 240, um, at least. I think those those guys were just too big to have this style of a match, in my opinion. Let's keep rolling here and talk about the rumor in Inumendo. Allegedly, and this is one of those dirt sheet things that becomes repeated. And maybe it didn't even come from a newsletter, but it was certainly all over the message boards. Did you guys ever talk to Rob Van Dam about potentially portraying the Glacier character to the best of your knowledge? Never happened. Never. Not with me or not, not, not with my approval. Did anybody else do it? I can't suggest or confirm or deny that Terry Taylor, Kevin Sullivan, or Mike Graham or somebody else may have had a conversation with him. That could have happened. But the Mortis character was my project, good or bad. <laughs> and I would have probably been aware of that. And I never had a conversation with Rob about that at all. Uh, let's keep it going here on the show. You guys show an old uh, black and white videotape from a few weeks prior that aired on TV, I believe. And it was the Steiners Hall and Nash car accident. And we see Rick and Scott in the car. Uh, take me through this because it's a, it's a pretty controversial looking clip. It's definitely a departure from the norm. So it feels like it would have been right up your alley. Absolutely up my alley. And I loved it. You know, when I saw it this morning, I thought it was so well done. It was believable. It didn't look like your typical, I don't, I don't want to sound negative. So many times when I see backstage angles that involve cars and motorcycles and garbage trucks and beer trucks and I mean, so much of it, you literally have to allow yourself to believe it because it looks corny. And if you ask yourself, well, would that ever really happen? 
you're pretty much challenged to accept the fact that, you know what, it, it, this would never really happen. You can't really sneak a garbage truck into an arena. You, know, you really couldn't get away with that. This wouldn't really happen. And that's okay. You know, sometimes you just have to allow yourself to suspend disbelief and just enjoy it for what it is. This one, to me, this scene, this setup of, of Hollow Nash running the Steiners off the road looked as real as anything that I've seen on Cops. I mean, this looked really, really good. It was extremely well done. It was believable from the get-go. Now, even to the point where if you're the viewer at home and you want to be cynical and you want to be one of those people that sit back and criticize everything because you think if you were writing it or producing it, uh, you could do it so much better. And look, there, that that happens in everything. You know, People sit and watch the Super Bowl and – you know, there are businesses today that exist because it gives fans a chance to talk about what they would have done. Fantasy football, you know, what would you have done? You know, how would you win, you know, a football game? After the, I always say, you know, after, a day after the Super Bowl, I could probably coach the losing team to a winning game after the fact. You know what I mean? But this particular scene with uh, Kevin and Scott in particular running the Steiners off the road was believable. You know, you one of the first things you ask yourself, or I ask myself oftentimes, and even when I'm watching WWE today, and I, I only ask myself this question because I struggled with it so much in WCW and even in TNA, is it, you have to ask yourself, why is a camera here? If you're shooting a scene backstage between two people who are ignoring a camera, you've, you've got to have a plausible reason why the camera is there in order for the audience to really believe it's a spontaneous moment where there just happens to be a fly on the wall that's catching the action. In this particular case, they they checked that box. You know, this was this was Hall and Nash being Hall and Nash. Oh, there they are. Let's have some fun. Let's, I mean, they were filming it for their own entertainment, which all of a sudden allows you to believe that this could really be happening. It's sometimes subconscious, but it's very true. And in this particular case, we knew why we were filming this. We were film, filming it because Hall and Nash are a couple screw-ups that love fucking with people, and they wanted to film themselves, you know, antagonizing the Steiners. I thought they did a phenomenal job, and I thought it was produced extremely well, and it was very believable to me. It is a fun clip. Uh, I kind of forgot that it even aired on this show, but uh, what a cool moment from WCW history. Let's talk about the next match, maybe a little less cool. Marcus Alexander Bagwell beats Scotty Riggs in a strap match. So the American males are no more. Meltzer would say they whipped the hell out of each other and Bagwell looked great from a personality standpoint, but Riggs had nothing. And the match went on twice as long as it should have went as it got boring. And at least they did a new finish rather than the classic strap match finish in this Riggs took a bad bump over the top rope and sold it like he was immobilized. Bagwell then dragged him to all four corners to get the win star and a quarter. What'd you think? Uh, next time I see Bagwell, he's probably going to come up to me and ask me why I keep burying him. But, and maybe it's because I've seen him so much over the last couple of shows that we've talked about. I, I just, I just don't dig his character here. He's just too, I don't know. He's too metrosexual. He's too, cool looking for the NWO. He looks too much like it. You know, I keep picking on Chippendale's dancers, but you know, there's a running theme here, you know, between Jeff Jarrett and his gimmick, even Scotty Riggs in this match, 
I'm looking at this thing and I'm going, where have I seen this outfit? Oh, I know he must be, you know, him and Jeff Jarrett must be sharing costume designers because it just, it looked God awful. Here's a, here, here's a good, you know, note to any amateur, or excuse me, any wannabe professional wrestler out there, or even if you're in the business as an independent guy, don't wear a fucking white gimmick to the ring. Just don't wear white. It doesn't look good. I don't care who you are. And Scotty Riggs didn't have much of a personality anyway. Technically, he wasn't bad. He was pretty good, technically. But there's just no charisma. There's no, I would agree with Dave Meltzer here. There's just no reason to really care one way or the other. Um, the finish, I thought, was pretty good. Uh, but I, I couldn't wait for the match to be over, quite honestly. Uh, Tommy Dreamer has talked about the fact that he was offered a position in the company before the American males became a thing and he turned it down. And when he turned it down, Scotty Riggs became the other American male. Is that Tommy dreamer kidding around? Or do you remember there being a discussion about that? No, there was no. <laughs> okay. Do you, do you know Tommy dreamer? I do. That's a uh, question from social media. I had never heard that story. So I thought, you know what? I don't know the context of how he said it. That seems like it's Tommy fucking around. Yeah, I mean, if Tommy did say it, that's Tommy fucking around because that's that's right up his alley. You know, Tommy Dreamer is one of the American males with Bagwell. I mean, that's laughable. I mean, that's so. I'm I'm pretty sure that was some kind of internet rumor. Next up, the uh, NWO does an interview, and they appear to be pretending to be stoned, uh, which is kind of fun. Uh, in reference to Kimberly Scott Hall says he thought Silicon Valley was in California. Uh, next up, we get the Harlem heat working a match with public enemy. It's a tornado match and it's an ECW style brawl using lots of, uh, foreign objects, which I know you hate things like the, uh, trash can lid, a toilet seat, a frying pan and a cookie sheet. And Sherry even gets in on the act as well. Johnny grunge is bleeding, but you guys are uh, not referencing it or really getting tight shots of it. Uh, it gets two and a half stars, uh, ultimately. Jeff Jarrett and Steven Michael will come out and hit Rocco with the briefcase. And then Booker T pins him after a Harlem hangover, which is the summer somersault leg drop. Uh, what'd you think of this match? Not your favorite characters. You hate gimmicks. I assumed you hated all of this. Before I give you my verdict on that match, go back to the NWO promo with the guys who were, I guess, pretending to be stoned. I didn't, I didn't know that till just now, but I, I, I can see why you would, read it that way. And maybe that was indeed it. I don't even know. But with the reason I like that promo, and it's one of the reasons why the NWO became the most successful wrestling angle in New Japan professional wrestling history, by the way, that according to former executives of New Japan, um, is because it was a non-promo promo. Instead, I was, let me tell you what we're going to do. You know, wrestling promos for so many years have followed a, a pretty traditional pattern or standard pattern. And it's always somebody yelling, you know, there's always people screaming. Everybody's always, you know, from one to 10, they're always at a nine. They start out at a nine, they end up at a 10. So there's not a lot of variation. And I used to tell people, especially young guys that I was directing and producing that were, that were doing promos is, you know, if, if you can imagine just to make a point and I'm going to kind of deviate from our format here, but when you're doing, when you're watching television, if you're home and you're watching television, you turn on the news and you see a talking head or two not saying anything. It's like dead silence. 
and they look a little concerned. That draws you in. The silence is what actually draws you in. The fact that they're not yelling or they're not talking, in the case of Talking Heads news people, you actually tune in and go, okay, what's going on? I better pay attention to this. This is unusual. This is not what they normally do. And the same, I think, is true in wrestling promos. And one of the reasons why I like certain types of promos that kind of follow a three-act structure is they build, just like a wrestling match builds, just like a a movie script should build, you know, throughout the three acts, just like, hell, an infomercial has a three-act structure when, when they're effective. And I like this particular promo, and I think it's one of the reasons why the NWO got that cool factor is because they didn't follow the typical wrestling promo formula. It was hard to break them, especially Hogan, by the way. Hulk was the toughest one to break of that old habit of constantly, let me tell you something, brother. It was hard to get him to be a heelish Terry Balea, almost, as opposed to being Hulk Hogan. And this promo, I think, did a great job. Now, it was a, it was a little loose. I think it got a little redundant over the course of the promo, but I think the quality of the promo and the effectiveness was was really good. Now, in terms of the match with Harlem Heat, Sherry, and Public Enemy, au contraire, mon ami, I actually dug it. I gave it a 9.5 on a scale of 1 to 10. Wow. And Yeah, and I was surprised. I was more surprised than you are because I do typically not enjoy these types of matches, but I really, really enjoyed this one. And again, those of you who are Fans, longtime fans, maybe you're new to the industry and you've heard now a lot about Dusty Rhodes. Go back, watch this match, listen to Dusty's commentary, and you'll know why I miss Dusty Rhodes as much as I do to this day. His commentary was so on the money in this match. He was putting over what he needed to put over, but he was so fucking entertaining in the process. And at some point during the match, when the toilet lid was introduced and you hear Dusty referring it to referring to it as a, a commode lid. You know, commode is not a word that you hear too often anymore. He, he go hit him with a commode. He got the lid from a commode. I mean, it was just so I was, you know, seven o'clock this morning. I'm sitting down there with a cup of coffee and my dog laughing my ass off listening to the commentary on this. But I thought the match was really good. This was a this was like a, a a street fight kind of match that actually made a little bit of sense to me. And the guys in the ring did a phenomenal job. I love this match, actually. I'm glad to hear you say it because I love the uh, ECW style brawls and all the shenanigans. This was fun for me, too. Uh, I think it was a little better than even he rated it here with a two and a half star. And, and I know everybody wanted to talk about different things in this show, but I'm glad we're finally here because since you agreed to do this show with me way back when, I have wanted to ask you about Prince fucking Iakea. He comes out of nowhere, gets a quick push. He's uh, almost immediately given the television title. And here on this show, he's going to be defending this belt against Ray Mysterio Jr. And he actually gets the win. He beats Ray Mysterio and the crowd is totally dead. Uh, Meltzer would write by this point in the show, the crowd was waiting for the main event. So they had no patience for these guys. Not to make excuses, because as mentioned previously, the IKEA underdog gimmick is totally dead and nobody cares. And they seem to have come close to succeeding in killing Mysterio Jr. by having him do too many jobs for a gimmick performer and ruining his illusion by putting him in too often with the heavyweights. 
There was nothing wrong with the match as far as work. They didn't tell a story, mainly did spots uh, that didn't miss and lots of high flying moves. But the crowd at this point wouldn't have accept a wouldn't have accepted a slow builder anyway. Um, they they have the bell ring at eleven minutes and fifty seven seconds, signifying a fifteen minute draw. Ray asked for more time. Ika agrees, and they start the match back. And Mysterio goes for his uh, springboard Hurricane Rana, but Ikea reverses it into a cradle pin one minutes and f- one minute and 44 seconds after the restart. And, uh, Meltzer would say the finish made Ray look real bad. And then he cried for more time and then still couldn't beat a guy that everybody considers to be a jobber star and a half. What say you defend this bullshit, Eric? Uh, you know, I don't feel the need to defend it, but I do want to kind of I do want to take an opportunity <clears throat> based on this match and Dave's coverage of it to just talk about the fact that, you know, so often the narrative in the peripheral media, whether it's Dave Belzer, Wade Keller, whoever it is, who's ever writing about wrestling in their respective sites or publications, one of the common narratives that you hear is, you know, the younger, especially back then, younger guys not getting a push, not getting, you know, young talent over, not giving young talent an opportunity. Hell, you've busted my balls um, over the past couple months, you know, about certain people that we'd put on a pay-per-view that don't seem pay-per-view, pay-per-view worthy. Well, how do you make someone pay-per-view worthy if you don't put them on a pay-per-view? How do you get a young guy over like Iakea if you don't give him a win over an established star? And I'm not suggesting that we didn't, you know, make a mistake with Rey Mysterio, but the effort here, and by the way, Kevin Sullivan was a huge fan of Prince Iakea, and I can see why in watching this match. This guy had a lot of potential. He wasn't great on the mic. He needed a lot of work there, but so do a lot of current top people in WWE right now, by the way. So it's it's not, you know, because someone isn't a great talker uh, or great on the mic or a great character on the mic means that they should be disqualified. This match, while there was faults with it, um, I think it went too long, number one. I think the – I love the idea, and I understand what Kevin was thinking when – and I'm assuming it was Kevin Sullivan. But whoever laid this match out and came up with the idea of asking for more time, I get that. I understand why they did it. And, and it was unusual, therefore a good idea because it wasn't your typical wrestling formula. Sometimes you just have to break it up in order to make it feel a little bit believable or unique or interesting. So I got the idea of it, but for Prince Iakea, when he's blown up to grab the mic and, and help make that happen, it, it, I wish they would have come up with a different way to achieve that because he was so blown up and so gassed. It just didn't feel real to me. Um, one would have expected Ray to win this match, which was another reason why I'm glad to see even now we didn't because you have to, if you constantly do what everybody expects you to do, then you're going to bitch about that too. But this match was designed to try to get IAK over. That was the mission. And, you know, maybe Meltzer believed, I'm sure (laughs) Ray believed that him, you know, doing a job is probably the wrong thing to do for Ray. By the way, it didn't seem to hurt him very much, did it? Dave. But in the end, I'm looking at this for what it was at that time. And we weren't just trying to get Ray over. 
there was other people that had to get over too. That's what we were trying to do. And one can look back now 22 years later and criticize me or in this case, Kevin Sullivan or anybody for, for looking at Prince Iokea and saying, here's a guy that we think has some potential. But I, I agree with Kevin. He did have potential and we were trying to get him over. And sometimes you have to do that at somebody else's expense. That's just the way it works. I think if this match would have been a little shorter, um, it would have been more effective. And I think if they would have found a better way to get into that extra time and made that a little more dramatic without exposing the fact that I could hardly talk uh, at that point in the match, it would have been more effective. But, you know, I can't I can't look back and be critical about trying to get a guy like Ayake over because that's what we needed to do. We needed more talent. That was over. We were feeding that machine and we had to grow. Them. So there you go. Well, it fucking sucked. And I hated Prince Ikea. Just wanted to tell you that since I was a little kid, I'm a grown up now. I'm allowed to use that, that type that, of that, language. I don't, did you, did you, did you go back and look at this pay-per-view? Yeah. Listen, he's not a bad wrestler. I'm just telling you my whole life. I've hated fucking Prince Ikea and didn't understand why he's like, you know, taking Steve Regal and, and Ray Mysterio to the limit. Fucking why did sucks. you, why did you hate him? What know. was it you hated about him? Listen, if you're allowed to hate the way Jeff Jarrett dresses, I'm allowed to hate Prince Ikea. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not criticizing you for hating him. You're welcome to hate anybody you want to hate, know. brother. I'm just, not taking guess, that away from you. I just want to know why. I guess I just didn't like the barefoot Islander gimmick in 1997, especially when you're not like even a big fat Island Samoan barefoot dude. Like if you're like, if they would have brought, you know, Fatu in here. Okay. I can get behind that. But now there's a cruiserweight one too. Eh, put some shoes and a mask on and let's get it. That's what WCW was about. <laughs> All right. I'll go with that. I, I know it's fucking that. dumb, but I'm, I'm a 16 year old at home. Like, ah, oh, fuck this guy. I don't want to see this guy. I'll change the channel. <laughs> I and it's an irrational hate. He's probably a great guy. His matches were fine. He didn't do anything wrong, but I was a super fan at the time. And just every time he came on, I was, Ugh, they're going to push him down my throat. He, I'm out of here. All right, let's talk about all really here. The main event, Meltzer would say, this is one of those booked on acid main events. Uh, the team NWO is going to get the win over team Piper and team WCW. They go 19 minutes and 22 seconds. And the whole selling point on Monday was that, uh, Flair and Piper are going to be back together again, and they're going to be side by side and nobody's turning their back on Roddy Piper and his friends are going to be here to have his back. And of course, none of that happens. Flair's not here and Rick Steiner goes down and there's not one WCW wrestler to step up and step forward into the war games. Whatever makes absolutely no sense. Uh, Jarrett Savage Luger, uh, McMichael Nash, Scott Steiner, giant, lots of dudes in here, but the big moment comes when Hogan and Rodman make their big entrance and they spend what feels like forever on the outside of the ring not really paying attention to the match at all. Just posing for photos for the press, which I guess I get, you got to get your mileage out of this and get your money out of this. Eventually, even once they're in the ring, it feels like the photographers, according to Meltzer are calling the spots again, because everybody pauses to take pictures with Dennis Rodman, which is sort of interesting. Uh, Luger would rack Hogan. Savage gets the spray can from Rodman clocks Luger with it. Hogan falls on top for the pin. They all beat up Luger after and Rodman spray paints NWO on his back. They paint brush him. And after they've left him laying sting comes down from the ceiling. They've been chanting for sting for a while. He's got his baseball bat and he uses the bat on hall Nash and savage and, uh, introduces his new finisher, the scorpion death drop. 
uh, backwards DDT. And after building up the heat with Rodman, Hogan finally goes in and sting drops Hogan as they go off the air, huge pop for sting here. Pretty confusing match, pretty confusing rules. Uh, the steps for the match were like, if WCW wins, the NWO must give up all their belts to the executive community and the NWO must leave WCW for three years. And if Piper's team wins, then Piper gets a cage match against Hogan down the road. And if the NWO wins, they can vie for any title at any place at any WCW event. There's just a fucking lot of stuff going on here. It's too much. And <laughs> have you ever heard, and I don't know what the saying is verbatim, but it's like, you know, if you've got a really good idea, you should be able to pitch it to somebody in an elevator. Yeah. The elevator. On the way, pitch. Uh, yeah. On, on the way up to the third floor. You right. know what I mean? Right. If it takes longer than like 45 seconds to explain something, you're probably, you probably have to rethink it. Right. Right. And I love stakes. I mean, stakes drive story. You can't have story without stakes. You can't have drama without stakes. It's, it is the beginning and the end of every great story is being able to define, isolate, and put a highlight on, on why it matters and what the risks are. That's what I mean by stakes. And in this case, I love the idea, going back to the beginning of the pay-per-view, how we set up the stakes. But as I was listening to Michael Buffer explain it, it's like, motherfucker, he'd be on the 14th floor by the time he got all that out, even with stops. You know, I mean, it was just too much, and it was confusing. I'll be very honest with our listeners and with you. I actually had to fast forward through this. I couldn't, I liked the beginning and I obviously, you know, and I, I did watch a good portion of the, the actual match, but I found myself hoping it would get over with pretty quickly or at least getting into the finish. And I did fast forward through a good portion of it because it, I, you just got too many people in that ring. Right. I don't like I mean, it's another reason why I don't like, you know, three ways and six man tags and all of that. Number one, I think from a storyline perspective, it dilutes the issue. The personal issues uh, are diluted when you have more than two people involved. Number one, number two, from a production point of view, it's really hard for the audience. I'm not, it's not hard for the wrestlers. They're good at it, but for the audience, whether the live audience or the audience at home, to really be able to follow what's going on in the ring as it relates to the stories and the issues that are supposed to be driving it, it's just too hard. The action inside of, you know, WCW ring, I think was 20 by 20, might have even been 18 by 18, I can't remember. But the ring is just not big enough for all of those people to be able to do anything that's visually stimulating to watch. It's slow, especially when you got guys like Kevin. Um, Kevin Nash in there, who's as big as he is. And, you know, Scott, even though Scott was super athletic, he could move like a cat. You got too many people in that ring that prevent themselves or each other from really doing anything that I care to watch. Now, I did, you know, get interested in the finish, obviously. I love the way we use Sting here, because if you remember at this particular time with Sting, there was a question mark. Again, we were creating those questions. Questions were driving the story. Questions were driving the promotion, you know, starting with who's the third man. And we kept trying to figure out new ways to create those types of questions. Um, the, the use of Sting here I thought was super effective. The first question I had in my mind 
you know, when he came down, it was, fuck, why didn't he come down earlier? And then I remembered, well, he didn't come down earlier because we wanted to capitalize on the question mark, who is he here to support? And if he would have come down and cleaned house, it might have been a more effective way to finish the match, especially one that was as awkward and cumbersome and confusing as this one was. It would have had a great ending to it. But we got that ending anyway um, with Sting, and I thought I think it, it drew out or you know, elongated that period of time where we weren't really sure what Sting was going to do. But overall, I thought it was very effective, but the match was hard for me to watch. We have an expression in the South. I'd like to teach you. You ever see a monkey fuck a football? My dad used to say that all the time. Well, maybe it's not from the South, but that's what this is to me. This is a monkey fucking a football. I don't disagree. I I, mean, I I, want to like it. You've got so much talent, but it just feels like, uh, this is a fucking miss. And I don't know why, because you've got, as we said, all that talent. I do want to mention something that. And I know there is a part of this story that we can't tell here on the show because we just don't want it out there, but we do tell it at some live shows and with the understanding that, Hey, please don't film this. But allegedly this is the show where you guys go visit the Stern show and you take Hulk Hogan, you take Dennis Rodman by to promote the show. And when Hulk Hogan makes that appearance on Howard Stern, he of course is there to plug uncensored as he should be. It's a big deal. You've landed you know what a coup it is to have Dennis Rodman on the show. Hogan has no idea where the pay-per-view is taking place. <laughs> that fucking tickled me in my research when I'm, I'm trying to find, Hey, what's going on? And <laughs> Howard says, Hey, where is it? Uh, it's on pay-per-view. <laughs> I know, but where, I mean, like he literally had no idea where the show was. Uh, is it fair to say that maybe you guys had been, uh, well, for lack of a better word, naching the night before you went on Howard Stern. Yeah, naching like a Nature Boy Ric Flair. Let's just let's just say oh, oh. <laughs> I can certainly relate to and empathize with why Hulk couldn't remember where the pay per view was because it was a very, as you've heard on the live show, and I told you the story privately. It was a very interesting and colorful evening. And even more interesting and colorful morning, <laughs> but yeah, it was a, it was a tough day. Well, this was not a fun or not a tough show to do. It was a lot of fun to do. And, uh, the audience was sort of split on watching it way back when, and the wrestling observer reader poll, it got a 39.7% thumbs up a 43.4% thumbs down and a 16.9% thumbs in the middle. So thumbs down was the prevailing verdict. You haven't watched this in a long time. What did you think of the match or what did you think of this pay-per-view as a whole? I think it's one of WCW's better pay-per-views overall. And again, I've said this, I'm going to continue saying it because I think the context in which I say it is pretty important, at least to me. But I look at these things now from a producer's point of view and a, a writer's point of view and even a director's. And when I go through my mental checklist of all the boxes that need to be checked in order for something to be really effective, I'd say we checked on, on, in almost every match, we checked the majority of the boxes that we should have. I thought the, the show was produced very well. I thought the narrative, the announcing, the use of Mike Tanay, which we haven't talked about here, using Mike Tanay sparingly, particularly when we were talking about action relating to the luchadors or to our Japanese wrestlers, that was when Mike today was at his very best. 
and that is the right way to use Mike today. And I hope he gets another crack at it because if you know when TNA put him in 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 play by play, we're talking about Mike today. Um, I think they did him a disservice. I think they did he, he did himself a disservice by taking that role because that's just not what he's great at. But when you put him in a three man booth and you tap in to that vast amount of knowledge and great instinct that he has for putting over what's unique about international talent. I really, really love the way we use Mike here. So I, I, I love the storytelling. I think we set pretty much every match was set up fairly well. Some of them were set up very well. Uh, even the match with uh, Prince Iakea, which kind of came off a little cold to me and not a lot of great backstory. Uh, I know you hated him. I know the match was certainly not the highlight of the pay-per-view, but I thought it was a pretty solid match. Might have been the weakest point of the match. I would say between that one and the Bagwell-Riggs match were probably the two lower points for me, but they were both decent matches. Um, overall, I, I loved it. I wish I could do it over again. I wish I could have focused on one really, really important stake or set of stakes. Um, I don't think I would ever put that many people in the ring again. I think it's just a, a recipe for boredom because you can't possibly present enough dynamic, exciting, meaningful action and or story resulting from it to satisfy the audience. It's just too hard. It's too much for them to watch. And they disconnect as a result. But other than, you know, a couple of things here, I, I really dug this. I thought it was great. Well, let's see what our listeners thought. Let's go to at 83 weeks. We asked you guys the question. Hey, have a question about uncensored 97 for Eric Bischoff. Fire away right here. All right, let's get to the questions, Eric. Let's do some rapid fire here. Are you ready? I'm ready. Josh wants to know. I love the commentary team on this show. So funny. And they had great chemistry. My question is, what was your relationship with Tony Schiavone like in WCW? To me, he's the most underrated and underused talent in the business. And WWE has seriously missed the boat on him the last 20 years. You know, I always get along pretty well with Tony. Tony was not the most personable person when I first started in WCW. And by that, I mean, he was always friendly enough and, and professional in, in every way. Uh, so it wasn't like I felt like he was uh, indifferent or didn't want me there or there was any personal issue, but Tony, uh, how, how do I describe him? He was so methodical and almost surgical in the way he went about things that there was no emotion in it. You know, he was really just a, he was the kind of guy that would sit there and look at a giant pile of bricks and a big pile of concrete mix, mix on the other side of the room and go, okay, we need to build a brick wall here. Here's how we're going to do it. Let's start. You know, he's very methodical about things and un, and unemotional in the way he expressed himself. So I never really felt like I got to know Tony on a, on a friendly basis until towards the end, you know, later on, as we started working, I guess, differently together, once I became the president of the company and I relied a lot on Tony, Tony was throughout my entire experience with him. He was the type of guy that, you know, if you gave him a task or a challenge, or a responsibility, once you handed it off to him, you never had to think about it again. And that's a hell of a compliment, by the way, because there's very few people like that in the world, <laughs> at, at, at least in the entertainment industry that I've experienced. He was that guy, though. 
no matter how big the challenge was or how much the responsibility was, once you handed it to him, you, you could totally forget about it. You knew that he was going to deliver. Th- that's one of the things I really enjoyed about working with Tony. As things went on and our relationship changed, it got friendlier and, and more personable. Um, so I always enjoyed it. As far as his play-by-play, I, I, I have to admit I appreciate it a lot more now than I did then. I, I don't really think I appreciated Tony's skills as much as I possibly could have or should have back then. Uh, but I go back and I listen to announcers now, you know, whether it's WWE, and I'm not knocking anybody. A lot of it has to do with the fact that in WWE there's a formula, there's a protocol, there's a process. And it was much different in WCW. We were looser. It was more improv. It was a lot more ad lib. Um, and Tony was really, really good at it. I think if, if anything, Tony was probably overexposed early in his career at WCW. And I think if anything, that might have hurt him just because you, 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 unlike Jim Ross, you know, you always kind of look forward to hearing from Jim. You didn't quite look forward to hearing as much from Tony because you heard so much from him as a play by play guy. He was really, um, he was carrying probably 75% of the narrative as he should, or 60% at the very least. And play-by-play guys are a little tough to listen to after a while because you do hear them so much. You start to subconsciously even tune them out uh, for that reason. But, you know, when I go back and I listen to them now, especially this show, I made made a note to myself right in the very beginning, you know, of what a phenomenal job he did handling the narrative, not just in the beginning of the show, but all the way throughout the show. He really did a phenomenal job of telling the story. Lots of questions about Sting. Why was uncensored chosen to be the pay-per-view where Sting finally attacked the NWO? You know, I think it it became clear to me watching this back in terms of the timeline. This is where we, you know, NWO had been running roughshod on WCW for quite a while. And if you go back and you kind of look at the story points here leading up to this show and even during this show, we were clearly trying to put NWO at a disadvantage. I was suspended. I no longer had any power, so I couldn't pull the shenanigans on the NWO's behalf that I was able to pull uh, prior to my suspension. Harvey Schiller came out and suspended me on TV, and that seemingly was the crack or one of the cracks in the NWO armor, Um, putting you know, NWO at risk from, you know, if they didn't win here tonight, if they didn't have the last man standing, they weren't going to be able to compete in WCW for five years. Well, that's a hell of a, that's a great set of stakes uh, to put out there. So we wanted to put them on their heels a little bit and introduce Singh as the savior of WCW, which clearly he was at the end of the show. So I think it was really had a lot more to do with just the overall timing of the arc itself, the NWO WCW story arc and where we were in the arc at that particular time. And the fact that I really wanted to create that WCW versus NWO branding, if you will, that would have enabled us to move into thunder with that, that strategy or, or, or those tactics in mind. Here's another fun question. Who was responsible for the music in WCW? Was there any legal fallout due to some of the wrestlers music sounding so similar to the current rock and grunge music from the time? 
It feels as if a lot of that music was a direct ripoff, just changed just enough to avoid any sort of legal fallout. Bingo. That's exactly what it was. And that's exactly what we did. We didn't, you know, we didn't have a massive budget for music. Like, and we didn't put the emphasis on it that the WWF did at the time. You know, Jim Johnson and WWF, you know, Vince McMahon did a great job and he was smart in the very beginning um, by creating his own music and cataloging his own music and licensing his own music. Uh, we didn't, WCW didn't, I would, I should say this, WCW had never put the emphasis on music, you know, prior to me getting there, after I got there, nor did I, at this particular time, feel like that was the most important thing that we could or should be doing which is coming up with original uh, music. Now, Jimmy Hart did produce some of our music, but often, you know, some of our music came from the Turner Music Library. Uh, Turner owned its own music library of, of music that we owned and, and could license out of our own catalog. We had our own publishing rights to. Well, yeah, that's where the NWO music came from, um, the original NWO music. Uh, but occasionally, if we wanted something original, Jimmy Hart would do it, and he worked with a couple different people. I think he worked with uh, Shane Helms on some of the some of our original music. But oftentimes, we would talent would come to us and say, "Wow, I really like this song. I'd like something that kind of had this vibe or sounded like this." And then either Jimmy Hart or whoever, uh, or somebody in the Turner Music Department would go back and recreate it and change up a few notes and a few bars and do just enough to get under the legal hurdle and we do it. I think it's kind of a cheap, cheesy, unimaginative way of doing things, but that's what we did. Great question here. How, what was the plan for Scotty Riggs coming out of this show? Uh, someone on Twitter said, it feels like he got genetic here. The reference being, well, Shawn Michaels went on to be a big star after the breakup. And maybe not so much for Marty Gennetti. There was no, there was no intent. There was, look, Scotty Riggs was just not over. It's pretty apparent. It was apparent to us then. It's apparent looking at it now. Great guy, you know, a lot of, lot of positive attributes, but charisma was not one of them. Um, not even close. Uh, Shep wants to know why was Rick Steiner removed from the main event? Uh, I mean, I guess what he's implying is, was there an injury or is it just for heat? Uh, I honestly don't know. Okay. I, I'd have to go back and ask a few people. It's the kind of detail that you know just doesn't stand out in my mind 22 years after the fact. Ryan wants to know, did the public enemy ever really have a chance in WCW? It feels like they were just there for crazy spots and counting the lights. Well, they were definitely there for the style of match that they became known for. They, they, they weren't there to have matches with Rey Mysterio. You know, or Eddie Guerrero, you know, unless it was a, a street fight type of match, that's what they were. That's what they were known for. That's what they were to the degree that they were over. That's why they were over. And they did have a chance because there was nobody that didn't like those guys, including myself. I enjoyed working with both of them. And we've talked about this before on this show. They were both really professional. They were easy to work with. They were easy to manage backstage. They never had any issues with them. And as demonstrated by what we saw on this particular pay-per-view, they were great at what they did. Um, they were very athletic. They weren't just, you know, not to knock the nasty boys because they're both really good friends of mine, but they weren't capable of going out there and putting together, you know, a a, a fast-paced, high-intensity, high somewhat athletic um, type of brawl 
like Public Enemy was. And Public Enemy could brawl. They could get as nasty and physical and, you know, bloody as, as the Nasty Boys could. But they could also go out there and work with a team like Harlem Heat and make the Harlem Heat look great, you know, and not just beat the hell out of them. We got lots of questions about the giant eliminating himself from the main event. Any heat on him for that? No. Uh, there was also a big intrigue about the billboard we promoted to sort of fish for questions. Uh, it was a WCW uncensored billboard where WCW is actually uh, above the billboard and underneath it, it says, this is wrestling with this sort of underlined. And it's got a picture of sting on the far left where to the left of sting, it's all white to the right of sting. It's all black, but it is the crow sting. Um, we didn't see, or I haven't seen as far as I remember a lot of billboards for WCW pay-per-views. Let's get in the weeds for a minute. Who would handle that? Who would have designed it? Where would these be placed? Was it normal? And I just never saw it. What do you remember about your outdoor marketing strategy? We didn't, we didn't advertise outdoors very much because there's no way to measure the effectiveness you know, the ROI and it's a very expensive, uh, proposition for the most part. So it wasn't something that we did regularly. We tried it a few times in terms of who would have overseen that, uh, Sharon Sadello, that was a marketing issue. Um, so that would have been Sharon Sadello and her, her team. Um, we did, we did them occasionally. I, I remember we put one right up in front of the WWE headquarters in Stanford just to piss everybody off. Uh, and occasionally we do billboards in a local market for a pay-per-view or a nitro, but it was, it was fairly rare. Not, not, not a common occurrence. Let's, uh, let's go to another question here. Uh, this is a fun one. Uh, did you realize, and maybe you did back then that this pay-per-view got more buys than WrestleMania 13. I did not. In fact, I didn't know it until just this moment. So that's even I guess a better testimony is to the overall quality of this pay-per-view and the story and everything going into it. It really tells the story of where WCW's business was here in 1997 relative to the WWF. Does it not? It certainly does. And I think this is what, and again, I know I'm sounding like I'm patting myself on the back and I honestly kind of, as well as you have gotten to know me, you don't know me probably well enough to know how much I believe what I'm about to say. But when I look at, what we did in WCW, obviously part, that's part of me. You know, I, I have an ego. I'm a human being. I have pride. You know, I, I've got all those things, but I can really distance myself from it. You know, I know I react sometimes in ways that would make you think that's not true because I do defend certain things where I, I try to articulate the reasons why I did certain things. And sometimes I, I know it comes off defensive or whatever, but for the most part, I, I compartmentalize everything that happened from the time the first day I showed up in WCW to the day that I left. And I look at it very clinically, but I feel so proud of this particular era of WCW because so many things changed. This is when, when people are looking at, you know, what they're watching today, whether it's on the independent scene or even in WWE right now, you can go back and look at these really specific moments in WCW's evolution and understand why just months later towards the end of 1997, a couple months, several months after this pay-per-view WWF and Vince McMahon threw in the towel and said, fuck it. We've got to abandon what we've been doing and we've got to do what they're doing. 
And to be able to force Vince McMahon to acknowledge the competition, abandon his formula, completely throw, you know, the kitty kitty wrestling approach out the window and adapt what we did. And and admittedly, he did a better job. I'm not not trying to defend myself against where we ended up and where Vince ended up. But this this period of time, right now in 1997, go back and study it and really see what was the WWF doing in the March of 1997 versus what WCW was doing in, in March of 97, and then go on to look at what WWE was doing in 1999 and 2000. So much of what you see here in Uncensored evolved into what became the Attitude Era and so many of the formulas that WWE not only adapted to that we had established but improved upon. And again, I, I get so excited looking at the, you know, the Eddie Dean match, for example, or the Ultimo Dragon, you know, psychosis match. That really, I think, defines today's wrestling. And it all started in WCW. It all started with that talent because they brought that skill to the ring. So I'm, I get excited about it when I see a show like this. Somebody online asked, this is a fun question. Could the argument be made that the finish of this pay-per-view is the hottest thing WCW ever did? No, I think it was effective. I think it was, I think it was a great pay-per-view. Obviously I've been beating that drum now for two hours and 20 minutes, but I don't think it was the hottest finish. I mean, arguably, you know, Hogan turning on Savage would probably qualify as the hottest finish we ever did. But this was certainly one of the top five or six, I'd imagine. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.